My name is Luke. I haven't met a lot of you, um, and I hope to get to meet you after the service. So if we haven't met, be sure to come up after the service and, and meet me. I'd love to hear your name and just hear your story a little bit. But I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to teach today, and we are going through the book of Galatians starting today. So I'm excited about that. We've been looking forward to this for um, some time now. So if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. And listen, if you're new, if you're a guest or have not been with us very long, you might be wondering why we teach through books of the Bible. Um, That's not the only way we preach, by the way. Um, we do believe in what's called expositional preaching, which is just a long, fancy word for, uh, for saying that whenever we do preach, it is rooted and founded in Scripture. What that means is that the passage drives the sermon rather than us giving you opinions and kind of uh, budding up those opinions with different passages that we think will fit. We actually let the, the, the Scripture, the passage of text, do all the heavy lifting for us. We do that no, no matter if we're going through a whole book of the Bible or if we're taking a chunk or, or whatever. But we do like to go through books of the Bible. From the very first chapter, very first verse, all the way through. We like to do that for a few key reasons. One of them is, is that it keeps us honest as preachers. We can't skip the hard stuff. We have to preach everything. And there's some really hard stuff in there. And we just can't coast by it or punt on the whole thing. We need to go ahead and address it and square our shoulders with what the Bible says to us. Um, We believe in preaching the full counsel of the Word, which means we believe the Bible is living and active and it addresses every part of our lives today. So we believe in going through a book all the way from the beginning all the way to the end to see where the Bible addresses our hearts. Also keeps us from skipping all the embarrassing things, all the stuff that we might have to send your kids out of the room for, or the things that might make my face turn a little bit red, some sensitive things, some tender things that we have to address, we'll address them. Hey, listen, there's some weird stuff in the Bible too, isn't there? I mean, straight up, there's some bizarre stuff going on in the Bible, and we can't skip that. We have to address all of it. So we really believe, not only in that, but showing you that every passage of Scripture, every chunk of Bible, whether it's in Proverbs or Revelation or in Genesis, it all points to God's activity in mankind through the person the life, the death, and the life of Jesus Christ. All of it. All of it. The Proverbs point to the gospel. Genesis points to the gospel. Judges points to the gospel. Galatians 1 is going to point to the gospel today. And so we believe that in God's big narrative, the big story arc, the big idea, every component of it points to Jesus. The best way to teach that is to go through books so we could see the common ribbon running throughout the book like we just did with Ruth. Okay? So that is why we do this. Um, Some of you might be wondering, why Galatians then? I mean, do we just indiscriminately pick books of the Bible? No, we don't. Listen, we are Galatia. I mean, you and I, we're Galatians. I mean, Knoxville is not really Galatia because Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region, okay? Um, In fact, this is the only thing Paul ever wrote that was not addressed to a specific individual or a specific church. This was addressed to a group of churches that were in what we would consider Turkey today. But all of these churches, this whole region, they were all going through the same thing at the same time. Congruently, simultaneously, they're all going through what we would call gospel drift. They're drifting away from the foundational things that Paul had installed in those churches whenever he planted them, not even a year earlier. It's important for us because in the deep south, we too are going through gospel drift. We've seen it for a long time, even currently. We've seen us drift away further and further 
from the gospel. I mean, currently today, we have more churches shutting down than we do being birthed. That's just a fact. This is one of the big reasons we're big on church planting. I mean, we're big on it because we are a church plant, but we're also big on church planting because of the trends that we see. I mean, we're a Jesus-focused church first and foremost. Everything is about Jesus. He comes primary in all the passages, all of our counsel, um, in our missional communities. We are fascinated with the person, the life, the death, and the life of Jesus Christ. But because of that, we're compelled and provoked to plant churches. Statistics prove, and our philosophy at this church agrees, that the fastest way to reach a city is to plant gospel-centered churches that will plant gospel-centered churches that will plant gospel-centered churches. It's the fastest way to turn a region. It's the fastest way to reach those who are far from Christ. It's the fastest way to see marriages rebuilt. And so we're a big fan. The thing is, the Deep South, if you were to look at a map, the Deep South, what I would call Galatia, so consider Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, both Carolinas, what we would call the Big South, and we're probably in the northern part of that, maybe Appalachia South, is the fastest growing place in the country. No region in the United States is growing as fast as the Deep South. And I think cities like Charlotte, um, Raleigh-Durham, that metro area, those are pumping up the numbers. But make no mistake, Knoxville is growing as well. Nashville, Memphis, they're all growing. Atlanta is blowing up. More people are moving in and immigrating into the Deep South than any any other part of the country right now. The thing is, is the church cannot keep up. The church in the Deep South is lagging way behind. Here's a statistic I want to show you. It'll be up on the screen. In order for us to reach the population increase of non-Christians moving into the Deep South, so put aside non-Christians who are currently living in the Deep South, we're just talking about the inflation, the overflow, the increase of new people coming in between now and 2050. In order to reach just the increase, we would have to plant 27 churches a week. That's a lot. That's not happening. Keep in mind that 85% of church plants fail. So realistically, we'd be planting a lot more. 27 churches would have to make it in order just to reach the increase. If you add back in just the total amount of non-Christians that live here, if you add all of that, what we would need to plant is the church in the south to reach all of that. Go ahead and go to, are you at the next one already? There it is. 109 a week. 109 a week. That's how far back we're trending. This shrinking church syndrome, this redacting church that we've been seeing here recently, it's not because churches aren't cool anymore. It's not because churches aren't relevant to what's going on in culture. It's not because we don't watch enough TV. It's not because we don't know what's going on in music. It's just simply because for many of the churches, there has long since been a drift away from the gospel. There's been a gospel drift. We're seeing it, even in our own times. The biggest irrelevancy is not between the church and what's going on in the hip and fast and cool world. It's the irrelevancy that's going on between the pulpit and the human condition. It's what's going on between the church's direction and how they preach the gospel that they've drifted away from and the human soul. People have stopped understanding what is going on in the church, and the church has stopped making sense to a lot of people. And that's why we're seeing a shrinkage That's why we're not being able to keep up with the trend. And that's why the church is largely becoming irrelevant. And listen, if the church has drifted away from the gospel, if the church has drifted far away 
from the life, the death, and the life of Jesus, the story of what God has done among us, then all you have left is behavior modification. That's all the church can offer you. That's all I would be able to offer you. Listen, if we drift away from the gospel, all I can do is tell you how to change the way you perform. Change the way that you behave so maybe you won't feel so guilty. Maybe you won't feel the heavy weight of condemnation. I could give you tricks. I could make you feel bad. I could encourage you. I could be a cheerleader. But without the gospel, I can't really do a whole lot. If you don't have the work of Jesus, you just have the work of yourself. That's why a lot of times you see things in churches that just look goofy. They seem goofy. Like, you should forgive each other. Why? Because it's nice. Because that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do is forgive each other. Hey, you should show up to church. Why? Well, because that's what we've always done. I mean, that's, that's where you're supposed to go on Sundays, right? I mean, you're supposed to feel guilty if you sleep in, right? If you leave the gospel in the rearview mirror, everything becomes very, very, very irrelevant. Listen, these are stats that won't be up on the screen. But this proves the point that we're drifting. Right now, right now, only 41% of people that live in the South but say they're Christians. So think Knoxville. We're there. Only 41% of residents of Knoxville or residents of the Deep South believe that there is only one true interpretation of Bible teachings. 41%. That means 6 out of 10 believe that there are multiple interpretations to what the Bible teaches. Now listen, there are multiple applications to what the Bible teaches. That's true. The Bible teaches one meaning, and we could have several different applications for it, but not several different interpretations. God, like you and me, whenever he's communicating something, he means to be, he means to be understood. He's saying something, and he wants to be clearly understood. None of us in here say something, and we think, I hope they take that many different ways. I hope they interpret what I just said in any different way that they would like. That would mean a lot to me. I would feel valued if they did that. None of us would think that. But six out of ten people walking around right now that call themselves a Christian would come up to you and say, hey, well, listen, that's just your interpretation of the story. That's not mine. But hey, there's love, so we could walk together. We could jive. We could do life. The fact is, is if someone does come up and say that, one of you might be wrong. Both of you might be wrong, but both of you cannot be right. There's only one biblical, one true interpretation of what the Bible is saying. We don't always hit it, but there's only one true interpretation. Well, only six out of ten people disagree with me there. How about this stat? 36% of people who say that they're a Christian and live in Knoxville, live in the Deep South, only 36% believe that Christianity is the one true faith that leads to eternal life. <laughs> These are avowed Christians, friends. These are people that say they love Jesus, and only 36% believe that Christianity is the only way to eternal life. Do the math. 64% then believe in a gospel contrary to the one that the Bible teaches. 64%. I'd say we've drifted from the gospel. I'd say we find ourselves firmly rooted in Galatia. We are Galatians. Paul is writing to us. The same barrel that we're looking down in church culture and it's just in culture in general is the same barrel that Paul had to deal with. This is the thing that gets me. The same scholars, the same statisticians, they say that if trends don't change, then by the year 2050, the closest thing we have on earth that will look like us that's going on right now is the nation of France. France. 
do with that whatever you want. What they're saying is, is if trends don't correct, then we're going to just look like a place with a bunch of churches that turned into gift shops or museums, but it's a post-Christian society. Friends, we're going to look like France. Except for the stinky cheese and the bad Olympics. At least we show up in the Olympics. I'll put that over France. If you're French here, by the way, thanks for coming. It's good to have you at Legacy Church. (laughs) Now, this is the thing. The enemy, our enemy, the devil, the enemy of humanity, he's actually not really against church planting. He's not. He's just against good church planting. He's against good church planting. I mean, listen, if it's leading people away from the gospel, if it's leading them to pluralistic interpretations— I mean, if church plants are leading people to legalistic behavior and striving really hard to be approved in God's eyes, if that's what the church is doing, then the enemy's all for it. Why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be? So whenever I tell you that there are more churches shutting down in Knoxville than are being birthed, don't shed too many tears. Fact is, friend, a lot of them needed to shut down. I'm just going to say it. A lot of them needed to shut down. A lot of them still need to shut down because they've started to drift away from the gospel. There's been a departation away from the true story of what God has done on earth and what that means not just for the lost but for the living. So Galatians as a whole, the whole book, is Paul contending against gospel drift and gospel pollution. Because what you do is anytime you take 5% away from the gospel or you change it just 2 degrees, doesn't sound like a big deal. I mean, it's pretty close, right? 2 degrees is pretty close to straight on. I mean, 1% is not that much, Luke. But if you change it just a little bit, it has massive implications. Massive. You know, in the ancient world, it was a big deal to live in a city with walls and with an internal water supply. That was a big deal. You knew you were in a safe town if you had big walls and an internal water supply. Because if anyone ever sieged or besieged your town, if there was ever an army outside waiting you out, and you had to rely on your water via an aqueduct or rivers, all the enemy would have to do is just taint the water. That's it. Put a contaminant in there and starve you out. I think it only takes maybe two milliliters of oil to contaminate a whole gallon of water. But you try that, you're not even going to be able to see it. You could hold up a gallon of water with a little bit of oil, and it's non-consumable. You can't drink it. You can't drink it, but it looks fine. It looks fine. It might even taste fine, and it's going to get you real sick. Massive implications. Massive. So I like what Paul does. And I like that when Paul is speaking to a Galatian church, friend, he's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. That's important that you see this. If you don't see this, you have to be careful with books of the Bible. You have to be careful, especially with the epistles, by reading them as Paul is talking to a people not like me. And he's saying things, but they're not really to me. It's to them. And maybe I can learn from it. Maybe I can be educated by it, but it's not really to me. Friends, he's hitting us all right between the eyes because we are there. We are living there right now. So let's just jump in. I'd like to just jump in. Um, They'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, it'd be great for you to follow along and just keep your finger there. We're going to be in Galatians, but we're also going to be in Ephesians a little bit too. And in Galatians, it starts off like this. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him up from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now pause. Pause real quick. 
He hadn't been Paul for very long. He introduces himself as Paul, but most people would have known him as Saul the Pharisee, right? The roving madman that would come and imprison and torture and take captive. That's how he was known, right? Now Saul is an interesting name. And Paul is an interesting name. And we can learn a lot from that. Saul most likely was named after King Saul because they both came from the tribe of Benjamin and Saul, the king, the first king of Israel, was a little bit of a rock star. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel that King Saul was the most handsome man in the kingdom. And from shoulder up, he was much taller than anyone else. He was a big, strapping stud. He was a king. And people were naming their kids after him. I mean, nothing's really changed that much, right? The nuance of the name Saul is heads and shoulders above the rest. And that's what he was, wasn't he? This overachieving, hip, up-and-coming, shooting star, super Pharisee, taught by one of the greatest schools in the nation and by one of the greatest teachers in the school in Gamaliel. I mean, man, he's Saul. Until he wasn't. Until he became Paul. Paul is something different. Paul, the word Paul means tiny. It means little or small or insignificant, right? And that fits his posture a, a little bit better, does it not? I mean, if Paul did anything, he made a big deal about not being a big deal. He tried the best he could to shovel as much glory away from himself and point it towards God. He would deflect anything that people would try to give him as far as praise and goods, and he would show them that God was really the one behind everything. He says this in 1 Corinthians, and it'll be up on the screen. This is just an example. This shows you the posture of the man that wrote the letter we're looking at now. He says this to the church in Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. It doesn't sound like he's bragging right there, does it? It doesn't look like he's just some glory hound, a magnet for praise. He goes on, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, one day he was walking. And God interrupted his life. One day he was on the road to go and take people captive, and he himself was taken captive. One day he went on a road to take people away by chain against their force, and then God radically, radically got inside of his life and ruined him and actually led him away. It's beautiful. In fact, if you look at the story of his salvation, of Paul's salvation, right, the first person to come and minister and pastor him, the first person to come and pour into him a little bit, Ananias, just days earlier, would have been tortured and probably held captive by the very same Paul. It's interesting how God flipped everything right there. Now, I know a lot of you know that. A lot of you know the story of Paul. It's important to keep that in mind because he spends a big chunk of this book defending his honor, defending his calling, and defending his authority. He spends a lot of time doing that. You know, typically, whenever you read Paul's letters, look in 2 Thessalonians, look in Romans, look in some of the things he's written in the past, he greets people, I'm Paul, this is who I'm writing it to, and then he spends a little bit of time encouraging them, thanking God for them, but not in Galatians. Uh Uh-uh. He just starts swinging. He just starts getting rough with them. 
And he's not getting rough because he's trying to keep his job. He's not getting rough and he's not getting aggressive with them because he feels insecure. He's got little man complex. And he's upset because some people said some bad stuff about him. So I'm going to show off a little bit. And I'm going to fluff my feathers and show you that I'm really a big deal. He didn't start acting like Saul. He was Paul. The reason he was defending his honor, the reason he was defending his calling and his authority is so that it would not damage the message that he originally brought. Because you see, that's what the teachers did back then. That's what the false teachers would do. In order to corrupt the pure gospel, they corrupt the messenger. They corrupt the person that brought it. And that's how they did it. I mean, these false teachers were smooth. I mean, think about the case they must have laid down. I think if you and I were in the room, not knowing any better, we would have bought it. I mean, could you hear these false teachers? And that's who he's contending with. As you read Galatians, his temperature's way up here. (laughs) He's pretty high-throttled. But he's not beating the sheep. He's aggressive with their bad theology, and he's aggressive with the false teachers. But imagine what they would have sounded like. Hey, Galatians, let me just tell you, this guy Paul, let me remind you, he was the last to come around. (laughs) He didn't even walk with Jesus like we did. He, He didn't listen to his teachings. He hasn't spent any time with Peter. He hasn't spent any time under James in Jerusalem. He hasn't been around good teaching. He's just been off on his own. I mean, don't his teachings sound so much different than what you grew up with anyway? Yeah, that's not good. And we heard him preach. He's just not all that great. And some of you have relatives and friends that are not here today because of him, right? And he's bringing weird teachings. And here we are just serving you as humbly as we can, right? We're full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, can we really be that wrong? I mean, all six or seven of us, can we really be that wrong? We would hear that and we'd think, yeah, that makes sense. And they bought it. It was a good case. It was a good case. Paul calls himself an apostle all throughout this letter. All an apostle is is one who is sent, like an emissary or an ambassador. Someone who goes to represent a sovereign king or a sovereign nation, and they have high contractual power, like a power of attorney, if any of y'all have ever had to do that. So an emissary or an apostle would be able to go in and in the name of the king or in the name of the nation do divorce proceedings, um, attain real estate. They'd be able to do heavy, heavy, heavy things. A lot of times in a time of war, apostles were very important to kings. And here we have Paul doing the exact same thing. He was first and foremost a church planter who planted as an emissary and an apostle in a very turbulent time. And we find Paul all the time going back and trying to remind his people, continually reminding these young churches what is important, what is first and foremost. And listen, we have to do the same thing today. Listen, we love church planting here. I I I love church planting, but we have a lot of work to do. I mean, we really do. I mean, we believe in the apostolic gift of starting new endeavors, whether it be a church here, a church across town, across the state, country, world. We believe in starting new missional communities, new missions to the city. We believe in the apostolic gift of starting new things, acting as an active representative, an emissary, an ambassador. We believe in that. We love that. I mean, this passage is just God's providence. It just happens to catch us. We're right in the middle of putting bones and a little bit more formality to our church planting residency. Some of you didn't even know we had that. 
We have a residency already in place for people who feel like they are called to be a pastor and for people who feel like they are called to be church planters or anything in between, but usually of a pastoral ilk. We have a residency that equips them for that, and we love it. We put a lot of our time and money and focus into it. That's one of my main roles in this church. That's one of my main roles is working with residents. We love it. But here's the thing. It's going to hurt when we do it. Some of you won't be here in a few years. It's going to be because we're going to ask you to go with some of these church plants. Don't be shocked when we bring somebody up on stage. Someone that you love, people that you love and you've grown close to, that's going to go plant somewhere. And we're going to ask you to prayerfully consider going with. Spending some time, not just praying and writing a check, but moving your family and going. Some of us will be saying goodbye. It's hard. It costs the church a lot of money. It costs us a lot of time. It's because we believe in it. But not just any church planting. It needs to be good, grace-driven, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused church planting. And that takes a lot of work. And so we have to do the same thing Paul does. The same thing Paul does. Listen, if we just be big about planting churches, well, that's just goofy over time. Just because you plant a church doesn't mean that church is going to be healthy. It doesn't mean it's going to be any help to the community just because it's a church or has church in the name. That doesn't make it a help. It doesn't. So we have a big task before us. These Galatian churches were new plants. They were new, they're actually younger than we are. Scholars believe that these churches in Galatia were younger than legacy churches whenever this was written. That's amazing. It happened fast, didn't it? The drift, it happened quickly. I mean, these teachers came and they quickly started adding requirements to God's free grace. I don't even know what that must have sounded like for these new Christians. They would teach that God's news was good news, but just needed a little bit of help. Just needed a little bit of help. That if you were really to please God and really be approved before God, well, then there were some things that you needed to add. Not big things, just little things. Performance, behavior, obligations. And your performance could increase or decrease your merit and your standing before God. These false teachers simply would not let the good news just be good news. They wouldn't let it happen. They would call your new faith as a Christian almost finished. Almost finished. But it needed a little bit of work if you really wanted God to love you. If you really wanted him to put all of his stock in you. So we could learn a bunch right here. First of all, we see that smooth teaching can corrupt something very beautiful very, very fast. That we do see. But we also see that when people add things to the gospel, it's never really always bad stuff. Sometimes it's just good stuff. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes it seems to make sense. It seems to make sense to do some of the things that we're putting on them. But it was law. It was law. If we can remove our condemnation or our own guilt by what we do or do not do. If we can do that, then no longer do we need what Jesus has done on the cross because it's just inadequate, it's insufficient because we could do it of our own accord. And I don't even know if all these false teachers meant to be teaching this, but this is what they taught. When we add anything to the gospel, when we say that the life and the death of Jesus was insufficient to please God and to secure favor, we're simply saying there was not enough blood on the cross. And we have to stand on our own two feet and with our own manufactured righteousness give more to get God to like us like we need to be liked. Here's a statement that Martin Luther said. He says, The man who is named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself for our sins. 
All of us in here know that. We know this. The man who was named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself for our sins. But that's just a statement. This is what he really says right after that. The heavy artillery of these words explodes the Pope, works, merits, and superstitions. For if our sins could be removed by our own efforts, what need was there for the Son of God to be given for them? Slight changes. Five degrees off. Ten percent off. We have gospel drift in the South. We have it today. We're, we're there. We're there. And Paul's going to contend with this. I better go on. Verse 3. He goes on and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says grace and peace right there. And now that's a common greeting. If you've done any readings of Paul in the past, even a cursory reading, you'll see this phrase a lot, grace and peace, right? But it's a little bit more than a greeting. It's a cause and effect relationship. That's why they're together. You see, grace to you, grace to you is God's favor and his blessing totally despite you, even though you deserve the opposite. That's what grace is, right? I mean, catch this. If you catch this, saved or lost, it will change your life. Grace to you is God's blessing. Salvation, yes, but every spiritual blessing in heaven. It is favor given to you totally despite you. That means totally despite your best attempts to get it yourself and totally despite your biggest failures to secure it yourself. Totally despite you, even though you deserve the opposite. Even though you deserve the total damnation that's coming to you, even though you deserve total separation from God. Grace comes to you despite you, even though you deserve the opposite. Doesn't sound fair. Well, I mean, why would he do that, Luke? Because he wanted to. That's what makes grace just so beautiful, because he wanted to. But Luke, I thought he saw like in the future, like in Star Trek, and he saw what I was going to choose, and so he came back and he chose me because he thought I was going to choose him. It's not really working now. He did it because he wanted to, because he loved you. Before you even had an ability to do right or wrong, he had already shown you love and grace. And then one day, like Paul, like me, he wrecked you. He ruined you. He enticed you by the grace that he gives so freely. It's beautiful. The people, now the thing about that is, is whenever you have that grace, and it's like a big fat tree, you can't get your arms around it. Have any of y'all ever been to the Redwood Forest? I mean, those trees, you can't even begin to get your arms around them. And that's the way I feel about grace. I feel like I can't, I, I, man, it just seems so big. I can give it a shot, but it's just so big. But whenever you start to understand what grace has done for you, it gives you peace. It brings peace. It brings peace. Peace comes to those who have that grace and that understanding. Now, the people that he was writing to, they lived in this weird place, this weird little zone in what would be called Turkey today, like I said. But it was always experiencing war. Always a new empire, always a new dictator, always a new battle, always a new flag flying, always people walking around with flak vests and AK-47s, always a lot of turmoil. So whenever they heard peace, they understood peace to mean a time of no war. No war. And we look at that and we think that might be a goofy understanding of peace, but we do the same thing today. Peace for us is a time of no turbulence when the car works and the bills get paid okay and our friends are acting normal and the vols are winning. That's peace for us, no turbulence. What God was saying, what Paul is saying, is that peace comes in the middle of turbulence. 
right in the middle of a war. And he also says this in the present evil age being something that we are delivered from. I feel like that's probably noteworthy for us today, just for a little bit. The present evil age, you see the Bible talks about time within two ages, linear time, within two ages, the present evil age and the age to come. Everything is really broken up into those two big shoe boxes, okay? Present evil age and the age to come. The present evil age has happened to be the one that we're walking around right now. We're walking through it. The thing is, is that's the one that you are rescued from. Whenever someone becomes a Christian, they are delivered by God out of the present evil age, drawn right out of that into the age to come. Now, the thing is, is we're still walking around, though. We still see the jagged edges of life and just the brokenness of humanity. We still see sin. We're still in this evil present age. That's why scholars call it the age to come. They call it the already but not yet. We're already there, but it's not yet fully, fully realized. We're right in between two ages, right? Jesus always spoke, especially in the Gospels. Read the Gospels just for a day, and you will see he always talks about this present evil age. He calls it this generation, this time, these people, this age, this current age. Paul also talks about it as well, and he does this in Ephesians 2. Very, very, very noteworthy. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, he talks about this present evil age. Verses 4 through 7, he talks about the age to come. Okay? It's helpful for us to see this. Paul did us a, he did us a favor in writing it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, as if you were in a river, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived or we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's some pretty bad news right there. So he lays it on pretty thick. That's pretty bad news. That's the news of the present evil age. And then he switches gears. Verse 4, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, the present evil age, whenever someone says that phrase, it typically conjures up like demonic attacks, you know, or this horrible like shadow creature coming out of the corner, something that you'd read about. You're like, whoa, no way that really happened. That's what we think about when we think of present evil age, but the enemy's really not that stupid. He's not going to be that obvious with us in this age. He would rather us be asleep. He would rather us just lull us to sleep. Think about it. If you were to come home from work one day, (laughs) tired, and you kick your shoes off, and you sit back in your chair, and you just lazily roll your head over to the left, and you see a big hairy demon sitting there, just boo, you know, that would not lull you to sleep, that would waken you up, it would embolden you, it wouldn't stupefy you, it would remind you there is a war, there is something going on, there is activity, there's motion, he doesn't do that. He won't do that. The enemy knows this. He would rather entice you to fall in love with this age. He would rather get you to own this present evil age and nurture it 
forgetting that there would ever be anything that would be fallen or broken or jagged or even at war. The enemy would rather show you that everything is fine. Hey, there's no attack. There's no war. It's totally cool. Everything's fine. No one's playing the bugle. No one's freaking out. No one's fighting. Everything's fine. Everything is at its best. Martin Luther had this great quote where he says, when the world is at its best, it's actually at its worst. That's what he's referring to. Currently, the church is there. The church sleeps and sits because things are not horrible. I mean, things aren't great, but things aren't horrible. I mean, things aren't awesome, but things aren't miserable. They're kind of flying in between, aren't they? Especially here in the States. And the enemy loves this, to lull us into the comfort of this age as if it was the only age. But friend, listen to me. This is not your home. Christian, listen to me. This is not your home. This is not your age. It doesn't belong to you. You're an alien, a foreigner. You're a traveler. You're just sojourning. You're just moving through. You're an ambassador, an emissary, a carrier. But this isn't your home. It's not your home. When God delivered us from this broken age that we live in into another age, He also broke us free from using our works and our merit and our performance to appeal to God. But we always go back to those things. It's just part of who we are. This is the way Martin Luther says it, and I agree. He says, the world bears the gospel a grudge. It's helpful to remember that. The world bears the gospel a grudge. He goes on and says, The gospel supplies the world with the salvation of Jesus, the peace of conscience, and every blessing. And just for that, the world abhors the gospel. And we do. Christians do. We resist it. We, we kick back. We press back on it. We don't like it. We don't like all of what it means. We resist it. We say it's not true enough. It's not good enough. It's not secure enough. It's not deep enough. It's not glorious enough. So we have to, with our own two hands and with our own righteousness, come up with something better that we can add to it to finally, finally be beautiful before God. Whenever you see Jesus in the Bible, whenever you see him not saying stupid things and not sinning, right, and not just being a clown, and whenever you also see him doing beautiful things and saying beautiful things and performing miracles and hanging out with lepers and teaching the kids, whenever we see him living what we call a perfect life, I mean, he was tempted in every single sin, every single one of you have been tempted in, and he never, ever failed at it. He never failed. He lived a perfect life. Whenever you see that when you're reading, do you see him giving that life to you? Do you see him giving that perfectly lived life life to you. I think sometimes we think that God does not expect performance or perfect obedience out of us just because he's being cool now. Like he's like, hey, listen, it's cool. There's love. I know you're going to fail. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, man. I know you're going to mess up, but it's cool. It's cool. Listen, friend, it's not cool. He does expect, perf- he expects perfect obedience. That's scary. I'm saying it. He expects perfect obedience perfection out of you. That's bad news. Good news is it's been given to you if you're in Christ. It's just not a life that you've ever lived. It was a life that Jesus lived for you. He took your grimy, sleazy, failed, unrighteous life, and he swapped it out in a perfect, beautiful swap with his perfect life. And that's what makes us the way we are before God. 
But it's really hard for us to believe that, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard for us to get behind that. So what we do is what we always do. We depend on our attendance and our performance and our behavior and our good acts to be this gift that we give to God. And listen, we don't give this gift to God because we love Him. We give this gift to God because we want Him to love us. That's the problem. There's nothing wrong with doing great things. There's nothing wrong with living a good life and giving it as a gift and a sacrifice to God because you love Him. But if you give that gift of sacrifice to God because you want Him to love you, now you've got a problem. Now you've got a problem. Listen, I mean, think about it. Why do you go to church? I'm going to shock some of you. Why do you go to church? If you go because you love God and you want to be around the saints and you want to just do life with the people that God has called around you and you want to celebrate, then you're, doing something, then you're giving a gift to God because you love him. If you're coming to church or if you're going to church anywhere because you think in the back of your mind that it might get you something from God, or it might preserve something God has given you, then you're in sin. You're in sin for going to church. That's a sin. It's law. You're a Galatian. I am too. You catch the subtle shift. There's a subtle shift in there. Let's take beer. That's a crowd pleaser. Let's take alcohol. If you don't drink alcohol because you're around a buddy that struggles with it, or maybe you struggle with it, right? And you're giving it as a gift to God out of discretion and love. And you're doing it because you love God. That's just the gospel, man. You're just giving it a gift to God because you love. But if you're not drinking alcohol because you think God won't like you as much, that's a sin. <laughs> that's legalism. That's gospel drift. That's departing from it. That's what it is. Anything you add to what Jesus has already done in order to be acceptable to God is what the Galatians were doing, drifting very far from the gospel. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. Here's some ways, because I've got to get out of this sermon. I'm, here are some ways that you know that you're a Galatian, all right? And I'm in this. I am a Galatian. If you've ever felt guilt or condemnation when you sin. And maybe it's that same pattern sin. If you ever feel guilt and condemnation when you sin to the point where you can't even go to church, or you can't pray, or you can't worship, you can't do anything because you think that God is mad at you, you think that he's avoiding you, or he can't tolerate you until you get your stuff cleaned up, if that's ever even been in the back of your mind, even subconsciously, you're a Galatian. Join the club. Join the big fat club. I'm with you. If you look down on other Christians who sin, and I'm talking about, they've got ugly sins. Maybe they've got some sort of an addiction. Maybe they've got some sort of ugly outward thing. And you look at that and you think that's not as, you, you think that's actually uglier than your sin? Then you're a Galatian. If you look at a homosexual, you look at someone as gay, and you think, how dirty. How come that person can't get by that? And you don't think the same thing? You don't think the same with the same disgust of your own sin? Then you're a Galatian. Join the club, Right? If you hold your convictions on secondary issues as tightly as you hold on to your convictions in the primary issue of the gospel, then you're a Galatian. What do you mean, Luke? Like Halloween and whether you celebrate it is like the pinnacle thing in your world or homeschooling or pork or the Sabbath or anything. And these are, listen, those are all good things. Listen, homeschooling's great. I love pork. 
I take a Sabbath. I'm going to take one today. I love those are all good. But if you raise your convictions up to a gospel level and you say that is equivalent with the gospel, then you're a Galatian. That's what the false teachers were doing. If you feel like God is more proud of you when you beat a sin back, he approves of you more, yet you feel like God avoids you and wants to avoid you whenever you fail at a sin, then you are a Galatian, and this book is for you. It's not that old of a book anymore, is it? It's for us. What I'd like to do today as a church is we're going to pray, you know, as the, as the team comes up, we're going to pray that God shows us where we add to his gospel provision. Where do you add to it? Where do you have a Galatian heart? Where is it that you say that what God has done for you and the sacrifice he has made and the substitution of lives perfectly lived for unperfect, where is that not strong enough, beautiful enough, glorious enough? Where does that fail for you? Where do you add? Where do you not believe that Jesus is really that good? We need to pray that God gives us a repentant heart today. Listen, folks, I'm a Galatian. Just going through this first five verses, I'm convicted in my heart. I'm convicted in my heart for where I have had gospel drift in my life. Listen, churches with gospel drift are nothing more than people that make them up that have drifted from the gospel themselves. That's all it is. And it does not take long to do it. 